0: The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. The key thing to think about bipolar disorder, it's not a a life sentence. It's an illness like having high blood pressure or um, diabetes. It's something that you'll probably have to deal with the rest of your life, but it's something that if you have the right treatment, um, I think that it can really get better. Hi there. Welcome to Students of Mind,
1: the mental health podcast made by Curious Minds for Curious Minds. On this podcast, we, the hosts, are just like you, eager to learn more about the mind. Here, we learn with you and provide you with clear, concise information backed up by real experts about all things mental health. My name is Jade, and in today's episode, we will be learning about bipolar disorders with the help of Dr. Diana Samuel. Today's guest is Dr. Diana Samuel. Dr. Samuel is an outpatient psychiatrist at Columbia Doctors and Assistant Professor of Psychiatry at Columbia University Medical Center. Dr. Samuel and her work have been featured in several publications like Healthline, People, Insider, and Good Housekeeping. Dr. Samuel also utilizes her social media platforms to advocate for mental health. I know I've, I said a little bit about you, but can you um, tell me and my audience um, more about yourself and the work that you do, and also just how you're feeling with everything going on in the world
0: right now? Sure. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be talking with you guys. So um, I'm, like you mentioned, I'm an adult psychiatrist. I trained at, in the, New York City and Mount Sinai, and then did fellowships at Columbia University Medical Center, which is where I currently work. Um, I am, like you said, the assistant, uh, assistant professor, clinical professor at Columbia, and I do a lot of clinical work, meaning I see patients, um, adults from ages 18 and above who deal with a wide variety of mental health issues, you know, from depression, schizophrenia, anxiety, you name it. I kind of uh, have patients that I see that experience these kind of issues. Um, I'm also trained in psychodynamic psychotherapy so some of my patients I'm able to also provide therapy as well as medication management for their psychological issues they're dealing with um, I on the on the note that you asked me about how I'm dealing with and how things have been going with the pandemic I think I've been dealing fairly well I think that it's been a challenging time for all of us and that similarly I've kind of been, trying to deal with it day by day, which is how I've advised my patients, you know, to think not too far in advance, you know, because with the pandemic, I think the one thing we've known is, is that things are constantly changing. So it's not one of those things that we can plan for. We just don't know what's going to happen in the future with the pandemic, even in the next few weeks, let alone few months. So the way I've kind of dealt with it is to say, hey, today's a new day. Let me get through today and try to manage how I'm feeling and feel the best I can and it seems to have worked pretty well for me. So pretty much, I think I've been doing fairly well considering everything, but thank you for asking. Yeah, that's
1: good. Thank you for sharing. Um, I've just been making sure to ask everyone how they're doing and if they're okay, just because I know that even that little thing can bring some light to someone's day. So I know that you have a lot of, um, expertise in many areas, but today I want to focus on bipolar disorder. Um, so can we just start with what is bipolar disorder? Um, and can you just provide like some definitions of bipolar 1 and bipolar 2?
0: Sure. So when we hear the word words bipolar disorder, I think that um, some people use this word, those terms kind of colloquially and like don't really understand it. But From a psychiatrist perspective, you know, we follow the DSM-5, which is our quote-unquote Bible, where we kind of have reference diagnoses and that meet certain criteria. So to have bipolar disorder, you have to meet certain criteria. So there's two types of bipolar disorder. There's bipolar 1 and there's bipolar 2. Bipolar 1 is diagnosed when a person has a manic episode, and I'll go more into detail about what that means versus bipolar 2 is diagnosed when a person has had at least one major depressive episode and at least one hypomanic episode. So, mania or hypomania may include feeling on top of the world or feeling very elated, like overly, overly happy, Um, or it could be feeling very irritable or angry. So, it's not just to feel angry or very irritable or just feeling really happy. That's not it. It's much more intense and a much more, um, elevated and very, um, out of characteristic level of behaving that is not characteristic of that person. So maybe there's a distinct period that lasts at least a week of this kind of behavior versus hypomania is there's fewer symptoms and less severity and they last less, not as long. So, if trying to make it in simple terms, basically with bipolar one, you have to have mania where there's a significant period that you're acting very differently than your normal self. People will usually point out and say, Hey, you're speaking faster than usual. The person probably is not sleeping as well. Um, they're doing a lot of projects. They're not completing a lot of them. They will, Their mind might be moving faster than usual, their thoughts that they can't even grasp onto them. So it, it's just, it's a very extreme version on a person that they've never experienced usually when the first episode happens. So uh, some people think that it's just, oh, I'm really happy today. I must be manic or hypomanic. And that's not the case. It's, it's very, very different. And once you've experienced or seen someone with it, you can really understand that it's quite different than how the lame person uses the word, or oh, you bipolar, or are you just having mood swings? It's not the same.
1: Yes, I, that's, that was actually my next question, because I feel like Um, when you hear bipolar, you hear mood swings a lot. Um, so I, and I feel like that's something even I, um, am still a little confused about, um, if something that defines bipolar is mood swings. So I'm still a little confused about that because even in my own treatment, I, went through a period where i was having mood swings so i'm just wondering
0: like what's the distinction so i think from a psychiatrist's perspective to diagnose the illness it has to be very obvious at the time that you're so either a you're experiencing a manic or hypomanic episode in front of the psychiatrist where they can see it happening or you have to provide a history that gives them the impression that you have bipolar disorder right because the psychiatrist is after the fact right they're now depressed and they're not in the highs so the psychiatrist is making the diagnosis often based on history either that the patient gives us or their family or friends you know so or if they've had enough experience and time with the patient years and years sometimes they've seen many of these episodes back and forth right so they can kind of tell hey this person definitely has bipolar disorder so, mood swings, I think, were like the way you're describing asking, which I think is a great question, is is that a mood swing, I think, gives people the perception that you feel one way, one moment, and then the next you feel very differently. So with bipolar disorder, it's not necessarily moment to moment. It can it oftentimes generally, I'm saying this very generally, and this is I'm oversimplifying the whole thing, but basically, it's not that it happens moment to moment. There's this distinct period where it's days usually um, where people are very different than their usual self. So it's not that they're swinging back and forth between depression and uh, mania. You can have both at the same time. That is a possibility. You can have both mania and depression at the same time, but oftentimes a person is either manic or depressed. So, they're not swinging in between both moods at the same time. Some people can don't get me wrong. That can happen, but many people aren't. So it's either they're manic or they're depressed or they're hypomanic. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's very distinct periods of mood elevations or mood depression.
1: Yeah. And I think that distinction is something that'll clear things up for a lot of people. Um, Cause I feel like what the, like in general, when, like a normal person with no knowledge of this thinks of bipolar. It's like, oh, that's someone who is just their mood is going up here and then down here all the time. And they're just like swinging from mood to mood. So I think the fact that you made that distinction
0: will be like really helpful for people. Um, to, to also note that um, there's other mental health issues that can cause your mood to be going up and down. So I mm-hmm. think that you know, it's really important that if you're having any experience where you think, hey, do I have bipolar disorder? You're questioning that your mood is off. It's worth asking or seeing a psychiatrist or a therapist or someone that has the clinical abilities to diagnose because it's not as easy as saying, I have mood swings, right? Then every, everyone could diagnose themselves, right? That's the reason why we have to, you know, trust the experts. And I think that um, hopefully if you feel that you're experiencing some of these some of these symptoms, you should probably seek someone's care that can definitely tell you what's going on.
1: So my next question uh, has to do with causes. Um, so in terms of like what we know now are, do we know of any causes or like risk factors that can contribute to someone developing bipolar disorder? Yeah,
0: there's nothing that we can say is correlated hundred percent to say like, oh, for instance, genetics, like if your parent has it, you're definitely going to get it. But there are risk factors, like you said. Genetics are one of them. That's a risk factor that um, you're at increased risk if your parents or a sibling have a disorder. increased risk. Again, it does not mean you're going to get it just because your parents or your sibling has it. But there's an increased risk. Um, Stress, such as a death in the family, a divorce, an illness, it can definitely trigger a manic or depressive episode. So I've often seen patients that come to me after they've had a very stressful life event, and then they have an episode of mania or depression, this is why it can be confusing for people because they then will think, well, no, I was just stressed. That's why this happened. Not because they actually have an illness. But if you think about it, it's that you have an illness, but stress can induce the episode. So it's not that you don't have the illness. It's just that stress can induce it and is a risk factor to causing it to happen. Um, brain structure and function. Um, Even though brain scans at this point cannot diagnose bipolar disorder, there's researchers do say that there's subtle differences in the average size or activation of some brain structures in people with bipolar disorder. This is an area that there's still being done a lot of research and there's a ton of work that still needs to be done, but there is a thought that there is some differences. Drugs and alcohol can definitely trigger an episode in a vulnerable person. Like I'm saying, someone that might be vulnerable to bipolar disorder. If they're using a lot of drugs and or alcohol or even some amount of it, it can really cause them to trigger, um, it can be a risk factor for them to have an episode of within bipolar disorder.
1: Okay, great. Um, in terms of what we know about bipolar disorder, um, how like how has our understanding of it changed over time? And um, in terms of like, The stigma around it, has that gotten better? Because I think for some mental illnesses, it's definitely gotten better, but for some it hasn't. So I'm wondering what's the case for bipolar disorder.
0: Yeah, I, I think, and again, this is my perspective, you know, treating a lot of patients over time. I think that I've there's still a stigma, unfortunately, with mental health disorders in general. And I'm I still see this, you know, it's with my patients, it's with their family members. I see it on TV, I see it on social media it's everywhere, unfortunately, right? But I do think that thankfully, we're living in a time where things are improving. I think that with people that are famous or celebrities coming out and um, being honest about their own mental health struggles, you know, with, um, there's famous people, you Google it online, you'll see who they are, who have come out and said, hey, I have bipolar disorder, and I'm living with them, this is how I am. And I think that really brings to light for people that these are quote unquote normal people, right? They're functioning, they're living the best of their lives, best lives possible. And yet there's they have these struggles. And I think that's the the key thing to think about bipolar disorder. It's not a, a life sentence. It's an it's a it's an illness like having high blood pressure or um, diabetes. It's it's something that you'll probably have to deal with the rest of your life, but it's something that if you have the right treatment, um, which could be a combination of medications, therapy, both. Um, support systems. You know, there's a variety of things that can help treat it. I think that it can really get better. So I think the stigma over time is improving. Unfortunately, I think with mental health, it's still quite slow. And I think there's still, unfortunately, is quite a bit of a stigma. And that's why, you know, like for me, advocacy for mental health is such a big part of my social media platform, because I think it's really important for us to say, hey, this this is an experience that a lot of people have. It doesn't make you Um, different or um, broken or, you know, just there's doesn't mean there's a problem. It's just like any other illness. I think there's not a stigma around blood blood pressure or having diabetes, right, unfortunately, or asthma, but yet there's stigma around mental health. Um, And I think we've got, and I think that a lot of that stigma improving has come with us understanding the illness better. So your point about how has things changed? I think that with time, we're up to DSM-5, like I said. You know, there's been multiple DSMs before five, obviously, as a number says. Um, and I think with time, we're also understanding the illness better, that it's something that occurs in people's 20s and 30s, and some people even younger, they present with symptoms. So we realize that this is something that people, um, you know, are, are, are dealing with for long periods of time, and that there are treatments that work. So I think that's also something as time is going, we're realizing that some people really do improve with treatment. And I think knowing that there's treatments that work and, hey, you know, thankfully with modern medicine, there's treatments that, you know, we're still working on to see what can possibly help someone, right? With depression for sure, you know, there's recently ketamine and, you know, there's other treatments that, aren't necessarily the first-line treatment for someone with bipolar disorder, but might be an option if they're really suffering. So I think that stigma is improving. I think that it, we still have work to be done, and, um, but I think that there's a lot of treatments that do work, thankfully.
1: Um, so you're, you mentioned treatments. Can we talk a little bit more about like what specific treatments are out there for people struggling with bipolar disorder?
0: Yeah. So I think generally with bipolar disorder, like I said, with if it's bipolar one versus two, it can be different. Um, bipolar one often gets, like I said, it's more extreme than bipolar two. It quote unquote gets people into trouble because it's so um, it's such a extreme variation of your. Of your normal behavior, that sometimes people spend their life savings. They they drink a lot. They use more drugs. They get themselves into trouble that can really cause them a lot of distress. So people might end up in the hospital or arrested or spend all their money. And um, I think with depending if it's bipolar one or two, you know, the medications or therapy it could really vary. But generally, if I was just to say it's medications can be really effective. Mood stabilizers are tend to be the first line treatment. Um, some of them you've probably heard it could be lithium, Depakote, um, there's Lamictal, you know, there's a, there's a variety of mood stabilizers, and it really, really depends on the person. So it's, I can't say bipolar one, you have to use this medication versus another, or bipolar two. It can be any variety. Antipsychotics are currently used also for mood stabilization. The FDA has approved some of them for mood stabilization. So don't think that just because, hey, why did my psychiatrist put me on an antidepressant only or put me on an antipsychotic? There might be reasons why, but generally it's a mood stabilizer of some sort for bipolar disorder. And therapy, I think therapy um, is a huge part. First of all, understanding your illness, but also living with it can be a part of treatment that really is necessary because like like we've kind of said, it's a chronic illness. It's something that you probably are not going to just outgrow one day. It's something that you'll probably have to deal with the rest of your life. So I think having a really good understanding of, Hey, what is bipolar disorder? What does it mean for me to have bipolar disorder? How am I going to live with this illness and what that means for my life, I think is huge. So in dealing with that, I think that therapy can be immensely helpful um, and supports, you know, having the right people in your life that support you through it, like any illness or disorder or any issues you're dealing with that are serious, right? Sometimes having the right people, your family, your friends, mentors, Um, who you trust, right? And I'm not saying it has to be all those people or any one of those people, right? It's, you shouldn't assume it's someone's family or friends. It's who you trust that can support you when things are not going as well, or if you need a little extra accountability or support. I think that's huge. And generally with mental health, I have to say, I'm going to put a plug in, which is sleep, your diet and exercise. That's something that I think every human being should consider how much they do of each of those and how important they are but i think if you're struggling with a mental health disorder like bipolar disorder where sleep is extremely crucial i would say focusing also on your sleep your diet and your exercise can be immensely helpful in treatment so it's not just the meds and you know i'm i'm someone that really seriously believes that medication's and therapy are not it just it you know as much as i prescribe meds every day it's not the end all be all there's a ton of work that people have to do in order to feel well and that's in life right like for all of us to feel well i think we have to do a variety of things to be that way so i think that the same thing goes if you're suffering from bipolar disorder or depression or anything else that you have to really be willing to consider what's what the the full picture of all the things that might be contributing or could improve how you're feeling
1: so your uh point about you know sleep and and diet like that was my next question because i feel like especially uh since the pandemic started, there's been a lot of things coming out about, like, natural ways to improve Mm -hmm. your mental health. Um, And so I was going to ask, like, what are some of those, like, more natural techniques to help with some symptoms of bipolar, but you already yep.
0: <laughs> kind of touched on I can, I, if you want me to go more details, I can tell you a little bit more about it. Yeah. So sleep, I think, is one of those things I, I have, I'm not exaggerating when I say I discuss it daily in my practice with patients because it comes up so often. Um, it's so comorbid with so many mental health disorders, like a problem with, with sleep, but also the general population, right? It's one of the reasons that people often start telling their doctor that they're dealing with something is because they're not sleeping well and they're not then depressed, not sleeping well, and they're anxious. They're not sleeping well. You know what I mean? Like it really does affect you in many ways. And your mental health disorder can affect your sleep, right? Conversely. So if you're very anxious, it could prevent you from sleeping well, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So for sleep, the one thing, if you know, I always talk about a sleep hygiene, it's the ways in which we sleep, the behaviors that can impact our sleep quality. And a quick plug on this is sleep hygiene. Is if you Google it, you can like literally find tons and tons of information about sleep hygiene. But good sleep hygiene is what you want to focus on. And basically, if you think of children and um the structured sleep, we want to kind of as adults do the same things that promote sleep, good sleep. Not just sleep, good sleep. So it's not drinking caffeine late in the day or any caffeine. Some people are really sensitive. It's going to bed at the same time and waking up at the same time. It's not drinking alcohol or limiting alcohol intake in general because it can really affect REM sleep, and that's the deepest sleep that we experience. Um, it's um, having making sure your room is really dark at night so that when you're waking up in the morning or when the early morning hours, the light isn't causing your eyes to then wake up earlier than you should be. Is it making sure it's not noisy so that you can sleep better? Variety of things. But basically, if you Google you know, sleep hygiene or look some reputable sites online, you can find tons of information. And then diet and exercise. I think most of us, if we're honest with ourselves, we can say that when we eat a certain way or when when we eat better or worse, we can feel differently. I notice for myself, for example, if I eat fried foods for two or three meals in a row, I really do feel kind of lethargic and a little like low energy. I just don't have the motivation to do as much. If I do once, no, I don't think I have, a, I don't experience anything. But when I do it quite a bit, I do notice that I feel just kind of weighed down and tired and sluggish and I just don't feel as clear. So I think, you know, for other people, it can be, it can be chocolate or it can be um, fatty foods or they're eating too many carbs. Like I think for, there's no one, thing That you should do. I think extreme dieting never works. That's just my feelings about it. I think that eating everything in moderation is okay. And just, but considering what foods might make you feel different ways, I think is really, really important. And that, if you need help with a nutritionist or dietitian, can definitely help. Um, and then exercise. I think that, again, I, I'm not saying to be extreme about it, but I think that having, I, like I tell my patients that are not exercising, I think walking outside. It doesn't have to be going to the gym and hitting the weights and running on the treadmill. Like It does not have to be that. I think just walking vigorously for 15 minutes, a few days a week, and then maybe it's doing more than that after that, walking up the stairs or just incorporating exercise. It does tend to make people feel better. The endorphins that are released, there's tons and tons of evidence about how exercise can be really Um, impactful for someone's mental health and that's still true for bipolar disorder or any other illness you know or anyone's life just like you said with pandemic if you think of natural remedies to feel well or to help yourself feel better diet exercise sleep three things that would be the ones I would say could be the easiest ones to focus on
1: yeah and I can definitely attest to that I feel like um exercise or any like rigorous movement is really helpful with like Getting rid of any extra energy that's sure. like pent up, um, yeah. So my second follow-up question, just out of curiosity, in your experience, are there differences between the way uh, different races experience bipolar disorder?
0: I wouldn't say that the the races experience bipolar disorder differently. I think that different races. And I'm going to use the cultures or, you know, the way even in New York City, there's different cultures, depending on where you live in the city. It doesn't have to do with race. It's just, you know, people experience things or how they perceive illnesses vary. And I think that um, it's the perception of those illnesses. That's what's different. It's not the actual illness. So I think that, um, unfortunately... There's more of a stigma in certain races and certain cultures. So I think with that, people might not understand what they're experiencing or what someone else is experiencing is a mental health disorder and sometimes it delays care. And that's what can be very challenging. I think that if people don't have a really good grasp of what bipolar disorder is, it, which a lot of people don't, right? If they've never dealt with the mental health disorder, I can just totally understand and you know, exp, understand why that experience happens. But I've seen time and time again, when I used to work in the emergency room, um, so many families bringing their loved one in and they really could not understand or grasp how this can happen all of a sudden, quote unquote. How can their family member be mentally ill and now have be in a psychiatric emergency room and then being admitted to a psychiatric unit when they were quote unquote normal? I think the truth is, is that If you were to ask them to be objective and think about had they had symptoms in the last few years, were there a small hints that this was occurring, chances are pretty high there was something, but they didn't understand that that was a a mental health disorder, right? They just thought it was, oh, that's them. That's how they, they are always been like that. And they sometimes just don't sleep that well, or they're just anxious. That's why they don't sleep well. And, you know, I think that there's reasons people can intellectualize, but I think the truth is, is that. Um, It's just people's understanding of the mental health issues is really varied person-to-person, race-to-race, culture-to-culture, or household-to-household. It can really vary in so many ways.
1: Now I kind of want to shift gears um, and talk about things that are happening Mm -hmm. right now. Um, And I'm wondering, how are your patients who are diagnosed with bipolar, how are they coping with the current state of unrest? Um, Like, are there any common symptoms or behaviors that you have noticed have been
0: coming up? I wouldn't say with my patients with bipolar disorder are experiencing anything different than... Most of my patients or anyone I know, actually, like, I think if anything, the truth is that patients that are seeing a psychiatrist already, I've told several of my patients this, it's interesting the patients that I see regularly, if anything, I think they're so cognizant of their mental health needs that if anything, they took care of them better than others in the pandemic, because I think they've been attuned to knowing that they have to deal with these things all the time that the pandemic wasn't any different for them. You know what I mean? Like if anything, they were like, all right, just continue taking care of myself. Right. So if anything, I've, I found many of my patients did better because they've just, they've revved up the amount of work they did on themselves. Cause they realized that this was going to be something stressful to them. Um, and some didn't, some people have been doing worse. And I think it's, it's not because they have bipolar disorder. I saw a lot of people, depression, anxiety, feeling worse. And I think that's the general, pandemic experience that I've had with my friends and colleagues and patients. It's been the same thing. And I think it's a stressful situation for all of us. And like you said, not just the pandemic, the unrest of the country and the experience that a lot of people are feeling. I think I've seen a lot more. The symptoms I've seen are people feeling more isolated because of, you know, the ways that the pandemic has you know caused that for us, that we have to be more isolated and socially distanced. I think with social isolation, people sometimes feel more down. Um, they don't get the the stimulation that social connectedness can provide them or you know, and I think many people had said, and I've thought myself is that I didn't realize how important those social connectedness and that social experiences are for us. It might not be hanging out with your friends every day. It might be talking to the coffee coffee guy, the barista, or it might be chatting with your colleague in the hallway or friend and for five minutes, and that's enough to make us feel connected. And I think when we don't have those kinds of experiences or, um, you know, that really can make us feel quite down or anxious. Also, you know, I think that a lot of my patients and family and friends and colleagues were watching a lot of the news and the media and even now. And I think that can be helpful to a certain extent, But I think for most of us, um, we have to limit the amount of media exposure because it can be really overwhelming. And I think what happens is people spend much of their time really focused and ruminating about these things, and it's really hard for them to think about anything else in the world or about themselves or about their lives. They really just start to think about all the negative things that are going on or their perception of the negativity, and I really can make them feel worse. So my advice to my patients, and I've taken into account I do it myself is I really limit the amount of time I spend on social media, which with accounts that talk about these kind of things. And I limit the amount of TV exposure that I have for any one of these things, for the pandemic, for the politics, everything. I've just limited it because it tends to not make me feel better. It makes me feel worse about how I'm feeling already about these issues. So I know that about myself. So I kind of learned that, Hey, you know, I think for me, 20 minutes is more than enough time of TV because I, I, I can kind of get the gist of what's going on, but I really just don't want to hear a repetition of the same stuff in different ways because it just makes me feel more anxious, more upset, more frustrated, you know? So I think that... That's something I advise my patients to do the same. That I think that it can really be really challenging for most of us. So, if you're dealing with any kind of symptoms like this, I think that think about the things you have control over in your own life and what can you do to make yourself feel better. And for me, social media and TV is something you have full control over. That's your choice to who to follow on social media or who to unfollow or restrict, or um, you know, anything or watch less TV or. Your choice to be around people less than might be making you feel worse, or talking about politics all the time, or the pandemic all the time, or you know what I mean. Like, I think we have control over some things in life, and these are these are some of the things that we have some control that I think can make you feel better if you can make some adjustments.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm glad you mentioned that because I think especially for young people, not being on social media is yeah. hard, <laughs> um, and you know limiting that. Um, can even feel a little scary because I know a lot of young people use social media to help with their anxiety. Um, but right now it could just be making it worse. So I think by you being a you know mental health professional and showing that like you're also implementing these things in your own life because you're struggling too, I think that's helpful for people to hear. Um, and it also humanizes psychiatrists because I feel like sometimes they they're just like intimidating and um so i think definitely what you're doing helps to like kind of diffuse this sort of like scary
0: psychiatrist vibe that some patients yeah I'm, i'm so glad to hear i mean for i mean listen we're all human i think that um we all experience a lot of the same things and you know the interesting with the pandemic and the politics and everything that's going on is I'm living the same things that you all are too, right? I'm I'm going through the pandemic. I live in New York City. If anything, I'm probably experiencing more intensely than some other people have in the country. And I think that you know, like I told my patients, it's kind of it's kind of a cool experience for us to do this together because I think that you can't you can never say that I'm, I can't empathize or understand this experience because I'm dealing with it, right? Um, so I think that knowing that. Hey, in the end of the day, your doctor is a human being or your therapist or whoever they are. Maybe they have not been through what you're going through, but they probably have enough training that they can understand it. And if anything, they're a human being. So I think just relating to human emotion, I think is something that we have gone into this field because we have a desire to do that. So I think that um, just know that if you if and also I think one thing I always say my patients that tell me something that they've never shared with someone is, is that I've probably heard it before. You may not have ever shared it with someone else, but I've probably heard it from other patients who have had similar experience. So I think if that makes you feel any better or more at ease, know that what you're sharing, chances are probably slim that I've never heard it before. You know what I mean? Like I, I've heard it before of some variation because unfortunately, a lot of things happen to a lot of people. Um, even if they're not that that you know the, the best things in life, you know even the worst things in life, unfortunately, have happened to people and thankfully, when they come to see a doctor, they want to tell them about it because they want to be vulnerable to the experience to get better. Um, So I think it's, yeah, I appreciate you saying that we're, you know, but we're all human.
1: So last question uh, before we close out, um, what are some resources that you would suggest for people who are looking for more information about
0: this? Yeah, and I, I love that question because I want to give a plug that like you said, I think a lot of people use social media and other web resources. You want to find a reputable reputable resources when you're thinking of these kind of things, because this is really, really important. And I think that one place that I would say is my go-to always for patients and resources for families is NAMI, the National Alliance for Mental Illness. You know, I think if you Google NAMI and look at their website, it is amazing. They have a ton of resources for all the major um, mental health disorders, but also for family and friends that might not understand or need more resources for support groups or information, it's really well-written and very easy to understand. Like bipolar disorder, you'll read a ton of information. And then also I've referred patients and their families, it's like they'll have support groups for families of someone with mental health disorders. You know, I have patients who their family members have gone to support groups through NAMI and found it immensely helpful to be meeting with other family members that are going through similar experiences, right? So I think NAMI is a really, really great ref, um, resource. Um, another one that I have to give a plug to is always is a, a therapist or psychiatrist, someone that you can trust that is has experience or the credibility to understand it. If it's not a psychiatrist, depending on where you live in the country, you know, in this country or other countries, that may not be an um Easy access to see a psychiatrist, right? Where I'm in New York City, it's pretty easy, but other places in the country, it's not that easy. So I say, if you can talk to a primary care doctor or, or a GP, you know, I think they're they also will have a basic level of mental health understanding that they can definitely help you understand what's going on, or at least set you into the right direction of who you might see to help you. Um, another one is, you know, again, like I said social media is a great reason it can be the, it can be the best thing and the worst thing ever but I mean there are some social media resources like you know I I'm on there trying to advocate and I try to provide my expertise on social media you know it's things it, it's something that I've chosen to do voluntarily right I don't get credit for going on social media or make money on that it's just that I really do want to advocate and share what I know and my expertise with others so I think you know understanding what is the person's expertise who's saying all these things on social media? Think think, think about that. Like, take two steps back. Is it someone that's just dealing with the mental health disorder? Which can also be helpful, but is it who, what's the person's credibility and what's the credentials in saying this kind of information? And, you know, perhaps just following a few people. And, you know, that's kind of the, instead of following a ton of people or, you know, thinking about what are the things that are helpful for you, is it that you need quotes or, you know, Therapy kind of statements that help you feel better, fine, follow those. and But make sure they're reputable by people that you could, quote, unquote, trust or you would trust to see in real life, right? Um, so I think that's the kind of thing that I would use is a very discerning kind of way. Um, but, yeah, I think that you, your doctor can be a great resource because, again, there's things that doctors have resources to that we can print out for patients that are reputable but patients don't have access to. So that's something I provide for my patients when they ask, you know. They ask, and I can provide studies and really good evidence for why certain treatments work. And again, like your doctor can help you with that. So finding a good fit is really important. And let me just say that too, is is that I've had a lot of patients that have had quote unquote bad experiences with psychiatrists or therapists in the past. And I'd say, you know, it's kind of like dating, you know, in that it may not be the first person you date that might work. So give it a chance and try someone else. It's all about fit. It's all about the fitting with the right person. You know, you have to feel comfortable enough. You are sharing the most intimate of details of your life with someone that doesn't know you or they might get to know you hopefully with time. So you have to really be able to feel comfortable within a few sessions to tell them a lot of things in order so they can start to help you. So I think that if you don't feel comfortable after a few sessions with someone, Consider whether it warrants you trying someone else. You know, I think that's okay. You know, don't feel like you have to stay stuck with someone that doesn't, it's not working for you. It's okay. And be honest with the doctor or therapist and say, hey, I think this isn't working for this, this, and this reason. Maybe they can adjust and maybe they can't. If they can't, then maybe it's time you find someone else and that's okay too. Um, but I think they could be a really great resource.
1: I'm so glad you mentioned that because I feel like it can be really scary to. Uh, like approach a therapist or psychiatrist when you're feeling like it's not a great fit. Um, So I'm glad you mentioned that because I think people feel like um, they have to stick with the person they Yeah,
0: I think that, you know, unfortunately, I think sometimes people feel that it's hard to get in, meaning get an appointment with a psychiatrist or therapist. So then once they get in, they're like, oh my God, I just need to stick this out and just stay with this person. But it's not really the truth. I think that Even if you're starting treatment with someone, if you're not happy, you can always continue to look and research, find someone else and think about, you know, maybe switching when it's the right time or or when or when you need to switch. You know, I think that it's okay. And I think, listen, as a professional, I don't take offense to it. I want my patients to get the best treatment that's right for them. And if it's not me because, hey, our personalities don't mesh or my philosophies or the things that I'm recommending, you just, it just doesn't jive with you that's okay, you know, but that's how I practice. And that's going to be, that's me. And I have to be true to to who I am as a psychiatrist. So if it doesn't jive with you, I think it's okay to find someone else, you know, and none of us will take offense to that. We want the best for our patients or people in life. So I think it's okay to think about other options.
1: Okay. So now um, what can I and
0: my audience do to stay up to date with you and the work oh, that thank you're doing? You for asking me. I would love, I mean, for anyone to follow me on social media, again, Instagram is where I'm updating m- more often and you know what I'm, I, I post, you know, my Insta stories, things I'm eating, things I'm doing, you know, just like everyday things about myself, but also um things that I'm learning or anything that I want to share with the public. So it's a really great place to find me. So it's Diana, D-I-A-N-A, Samuel, S-A-M-U-E-L, M-D, M-D, at gmail.com. So Diana, Samuel M-D, at g at, at, That's my email, but my handle is Diana, Samuel M-D. So you can find me on there. Um, emails, again, and social media, just be wary psychiatrists and generally doctors we can't give advice or recommendations on social media so I get a lot of messages with people unfortunately dealing with things and they want advice and unfortunately I cannot provide that advice on there specifically so that's why again my advice is going to be if you message me about a mental health issue you're dealing with it's going to be giving you a resource or it's going to be saying hey you should see a doctor and ask them more explicitly but please please follow me I would love to continue to share and if they're if you're if you're um if your audience has thoughts about things you'd like to hear more about, please DM me and tell me things you'd like to hear more about. And, you know, I could definitely try to share more about that.
1: Thank you so much. I think um, for me, it's really, um, it's really great to see someone being a doctor being so open about mental health on social media. I think since I've been getting treatment for my mental health for the majority of my life, I've had like this unique experience of like being knowledgeable about mental health, but being surrounded by people that aren't and having to like navigate that world. And as time goes on and like psychiatrists like you and other mental health advocates come out and speak up, that just makes it so easy for me <laughs> to like feel more comfortable in the world. So I just want to say thank you uh, for everything I- Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Students of Mind. I had a really nice time talking to Dr. Samuel and I hope you all learned something new. Make sure to check the description of this episode to see how you can find Dr. Samuel and learn more about bipolar disorders. Also, there are only two more episodes left in this season of Students of Mind, so as we come to the end of this first season, I would like to encourage you guys to rate and review the podcast, and also go to Instagram or Facebook to leave feedback or episode topic suggestions for the next season. I really want to make sure in the next season I'm creating content that you guys want to hear. On that note, thank you again for listening to this episode, and I'll see you guys next time.